Happy New Year. Welcome to the first days of what could be your best year ever in your pursuit of God. This is the time to set your mind on things above, to focus your heart on deepening your spiritual rhythms. You know you want to. That's why you're here after all. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. Our team is standing by, waiting to help you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots. Whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting today, we want you to know that this is the kind of family that will enthusiastically welcome you as you are, with all of your questions and doubts, with all of your struggles and brokenness. Here, you can discover Jesus, find healing, and a community who will love you enough to spur you on to emotionally and spiritually healthy living. That's the journey we're on, too. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Never meet your heroes. Now, this old adage reminds us that often those whom we place on pedestals aren't always in real life just like the personas that they display in public. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that all like heroes will disappoint, but it's best just to keep up that illusion just in case. Uh, ignorance is bliss, and like I want to stay in my blissful unreality. The problem, perhaps, with this phrase and with this understanding is that word hero. And the hero label implies that they can do no wrong and they're going to succeed every time, that they are flawless, essentially. The reality, though, is usually far less fanciful. It usually uh, looks like when, when a hero you look up to lets you down by not being who you expected them to be, it can, be, it can leave you like disillusioned and disappointed. And sometimes our heroes are less the comic book variety, perhaps, but instead they're people very close to us. Perhaps it's a parent, a, a mom who loved you through your deepest adolescent heartbreak, or a dad who took you on the greatest adventures, who instilled courage and confidence in you along the way. And for others, it might be a neighbor, a teacher, an aunt, or an uncle. It could have been a Sunday school teacher or a youth group leader who helped you on your spiritual journey. As we grow up, our view of the world changes. We start to notice that mom and dad aren't those perfect people we once thought they were. That your coach, who may have inspired your team to be the best in your district, was in reality manipulative and verbally abusive. And sometimes our view of God can change too. We go from seeing God as this loving, gracious, kind God we learned about in Sunday school to being a lot more problematic when you read the Old Testament as an adult. We don't really unpack the concepts of God's wrath and justice in children's ministry, but it's there in black and white uh, as we begin to read God's word for ourselves. It's noticeable. And then we wonder, is God, is God really just? Does God actually even care about us? Is, is this stuff even true? You see, a hero is no hero at all when they're two-faced. One who looks good on the surface but is duplicitous is a fraud. And while we learn to err is human from week two of our series, God isn't supposed to be that way. But if we're honest, haven't we all wondered at some point whether or not God is made a mistake? That his timing is off, that he isn't paying attention, that maybe his design is flawed. Maybe somewhere along the way, we have believed some lies about who God is. We know God is love, but even our human understanding of that one characteristic of God is tragically underdeveloped. And God is so much more than a one-word definition. 
And hopefully that's why you're here this morning, to grow in your understanding of who God is. And this is part five of the series, Lies We Believe. And we've already talked about uh, lies we believe about ourselves, others, and of life. And today we're going to investigate the lies we believe about God. And you may feel confident that you know God pretty well and that, you under, that your understanding of him isn't influenced by like misconceptions or lies. Or perhaps you're just starting your journey with him and you need some lies corrected. And just as we've done in previous weeks, we'll start by looking at the lies, but then we'll end up focusing on two truths. And the truths we explore today might not ne- neatly line up with the lies we cover. However, these truths can be applied broadly. That's the beauty of truth. Truth is reliable, unchangeable, and always applicable. But before we get into the lies, let's just take a second to pray and God, uh, invite God into this process. Heavenly Father, this morning, I pray that each one of us will, will bring some truth to who you are. That God, you are complex. You're so big. And God, sometimes lies can sneak into our understanding of you and rob our relationship. So Lord, let us understand who you are, who you're, what your love is like, what your justice is like. And God, let us grow in that relationship with you this morning. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen. Now, this series is crafted around the book, The Lies We Believe, by Dr. Chris Thurman. And in it, he outlines three reasons we may have believed uh, things that aren't true about who God is, how he acts, and who he is. You see, the the thing is, even seasoned Christians uh, can believe some lies about God. Our global faith family, called The Church, with a capital C, offers different interpretations and beliefs about theology, which leaves a lot of room for lies to slip in, especially if we are dogmatic and legalistic about our particular view, insisting on our correctness and being unwilling to listen to a different perspective. I'm not sure it's always that simple. See, at Dayspring, we have core theological beliefs uh, that we hold to be true and are accepted widely as orthodox, which means that these beliefs have held up through time and are generally accepted to be right or to be true. Lies about God can be some of the most difficult to let go of. And there's three reasons why. So we'll consider, consider them and then we'll explore the lies themselves. So the first reason is that these lies were taught to us when we were young. As kids or young believers, we tend to accept that everything we learn is, is fact, right? I can't combat a lie because I don't know anything different. If Joaquin, for example, walked up and told me that a certain sound that was coming from my truck was due to like a bad bearing and he gave me a part number to order, you know I would order that part as soon as possible and then trust him to fix it. See, we trust those who know more than we do. A lie that we were taught when we were young doesn't even have to be a malicious lie. It could just be misinformation that we learned from a TV show or learned from a Sunday school teacher who misspoke. You see, another reason we could have bought a lie is that they were taught to us by people we trust. Now, we don't doubt people we trust because we just assume that they have the best intentions for us. Maybe you know they have a theology degree, so of course they know how to conjugate that Greek verb more than you ever could. Again, here's that hero dilemma. If we can't trust our parents, teachers, pastors, our heroes, who who can we trust? The last reason Dr. Thurman proposes is that they were taught to us as what the Bible says. Now, if the Bible says it, we should like trust it, right? It's the book that like all Christians follow, So it makes sense that we take it at face value. And while the Bible is an incredible document, it was written for us, not to us. And that can cause some confusion upon first reading. It's an ancient, living document. It is the truth. And it takes work to understand it and interpret it accurately. You see, lies about God put us in a catch-22, a no-win situation. If we dispute any lies about God, we risk seriously doubting our faith since they are beliefs we grew up with and taught by people we trust. 
If we continue to believe the lies, then we're stuck with an incomplete faith, a watered-down truth that isn't as fulfilling or rewarding as it could be. It's kind of a lose-lose situation. According to Paul, though, if we have to grow up, even if we, we have to grow up, even if we feel like we're at a loss, in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 11, Paul goes on to say that it's time to put we understood about God as children aside and be men and women who understand him for who he really is. Paul writes, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. So today, we are going to look at five lies about God that most people Christians and non-believers alike are susceptible to. So I urge you as we dive in to keep an open mind about them because even a little piece of a lie may have slipped into our understanding without us really knowing about it. And the first lie is that, that we must face is that God's love must be earned. Now the rest of the world operates like this, this earning society, so why wouldn't God? With our friends, we need to repay debts. We need to make good on promises that we delivered, and we have to reply to text messages even if we don't want to. If you ask anyone if they offer an unconditional love and they say yes, they're lying to you. It simply isn't possible to love someone completely unconditionally. As fallen and sinful people, we cannot offer pure love. We have biases. We have conditions. And there's, there's a lots, lots of verses that highlight um, this love and God's love for us. But one that sticks out to me is in Ephesians. It's my favorite book, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. And it says this, Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. You see, Paul expresses that there is no limit to God's love and that it is too great for even our own human understanding. That's, that's a big love. Does it sound that his love, does it sound like his love is earned, though? I, I don't think so. See, our enemy Satan is always trying to get us to have a low view of God, and that the lie is that God's love must be earned. It's one of the lowest views of God I feel we can have, right? Think about it. We buy into the lie that God's love is so low and worldly that we have to earn his love and that somehow we have the power to even affect God's love, that we can affect him to love us more or less based solely off our behavior, right? We as humans, we are not powerful enough to change God's love. God sent his son, Jesus, who laid down his life on a cross for us because his love is so great. But I also wonder if God kind of scratches his head at us when we believe we have the power to affect his love by our own actions. He's God. His love is not something of this earth, but something different altogether. God's love cannot be earned because God is love. His love is nothing whatsoever to do with how we act each day. And closely related to believing that we can earn or lose God's love is the idea that God is mean and vindictive. That God hates sin is true, but he also grieved that the sinner is committing the sin. Again, this lie essentially puts God in a box and says that he isn't deep enough or wise enough to separate who we are from what we do. It makes us vulnerable to believing that our misfortunes or our difficulties in life are punishments from God for our sinfulness. And this lie causes us to doubt one of God's primary attributes, his goodness. If we go to the Bible to see what it says about God and his goodness, we can see passages all over, passages such as Psalm 145.9 that says, the Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. Or Psalm 86.5 that says, Oh Lord, you are so good, so ready to forgive, so full of unfailing love for all who ask for your help. And even Psalm 34.8 that says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. A theologian, A.W. Tozer, uh, captures the goodness of God beautifully when he wrote this. He said, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and, good, and full of goodwill towards men. He's tender-hearted and, full and quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. It's truly tragic that so many people, both believers and non-believers, view God as this vindictive, higher power, ready with those lightning bolts, ready to strike at us whenever we get out of line. God is totally the opposite of that. He is full of goodwill and love for us. You do not need to run away from him in fear. Of course, a God that is only full of gentle and like soft attributes without justice isn't really God at all. He would just be an enabler. You see, God is not just good, he is holy. And one of those, these harder attributes to comprehend is his wrath. Now, this word wrath may raise all sorts of red flags for you. And God's wrath is unrelenting, which if incorrectly understood can make him seem mean and vindictive. But that's kind of a short sell for the word wrath. Um, A.W. Pink puts it uh, like this, and the wrath of God like this. He says, his eternal destation of all unrighteousness is this displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. So to put that quote into words we maybe more readily understand, God hates sin hates when it happens, and is stirred into action when we rebel against his authority in committing sin after sin. But lie number three is that God ignores our disobedience. To relieve our fear of God's wrath, we can fall into thinking that God takes a more passive approach to sin, that because his goodness, because of his goodness, he's going to like turn a blind eye to the sins we commit. But if we are truly to understand God's love and his approach to sin, we need to turn to Scripture uh, again. And this is in Hebrews 12, 10 through 12. And it says, For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline, it's always good for us, so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are, who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Just as a good parent or mentor, God loves us way too much to not discipline us when we start going against his ways and follow our own path. And to be clear, God never ignores our disobedience, no matter what you see in the world. The Bible is clear on this as well. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. He is the one to whom we are accountable. No matter what evil you see in the world or in your own life, God knows about it, and we're accountable for our actions. Again, that doesn't mean he's just like waiting to strike you down once you mess up, because he loves you with every fiber of his being. His love for us is always redeemed. Redemptive. And out of that love comes discipline. We, we must not allow the enemy to twist God's patience and mercy toward us as God being some like enabling grandfather who looks the other way when we steal a piece of candy. Rather, he's loving enough to correct us when we get off course. And along those same lines, sometimes we think of God like Santa Claus. He knows when we've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. And when we are good, what do we get? Coal? No. We expect his miraculous blessings because we believe God wants us to be happy. And so he'll give us all the gifts we've ever been dreaming of. Even if we haven't been nice, we hopefully, um, we hope and we pray that he will grace us with unmerited favor and give us all that we have hoped and longed for. But that's the next lie, that God wants to give us everything we want. Say we treat God as if he's some sort of Santa Claus or some sort of vending machine. 
And when he doesn't come through the way we think he should, we, we resent him for it. Now, to be fair, God absolutely delights in blessing us and giving us good gifts. But we need to define what good means. Now, first, God will give us the gifts he wants us to have, right? Let's, let's say you pray and ask God for something, but you don't, you don't get the answer you want. John, I prayed that COVID would end last week, and yet here we still are. You see, while, while God didn't give you the answer you wanted, he still has a plan. He still has a purpose. God's wisdom is far beyond our own human understanding. We can trust when he says no, that it's good and it's for his glory. And second, he will give us gifts when he wants us to have them. Uh, there are times when we want things from God before he wisely chooses to give us them. You see, God's timing is not our timing because God exists out of time. He isn't frantic. He's not rushed like we are. God wants us to be patient and wait. And finally, God gives us gifts so that we can re-gift them. When we are blessed with talents, we are to use them for others. If we're blessed with time, we are to use those, that time to help others. When we have resources we sh that would benefit others, we should share them. You see, we are to use our blessings for the sake of others. James writes in James 1.17 that whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. When I was a kid, I would go to the grocery store with my mom. I remember standing in the checkout line and there was this, there was in the rack, right where I could see it, was Pokemon the movie Mewtwo Strikes Back. And I loved that movie and I wanted my own copy so I could watch it anytime. John, you're a nerd. Yeah, I know, thanks. Um, I'd ask, like, uh, Mom, I want that movie. And she'd reply, we're in Safeway, right? And be like, yeah, so what? Well, then it's in the safest place it could be. <laughs> and then she'd go on to pay for our groceries. <sighs> mom, you see, my mom knew, however, that my friend Rex already owned a copy of the movie and that I'd be watching it plenty at his house when I went over for sleepovers. She's a pretty smart cookie and knew that more Pokemon is not what would be the best for me in the moment. You see, God knows it would be disastrous if we had everything we want because we are self-centered and God is not some cosmic vending machine uh, waiting to indulge our every desire. He offers us so much more. The gifts he does give us are perfect, given to serve a purpose, his perfect purpose. Our next lie is that God has lost control of everything. So I feel like it could be easy to look at the world around us and the history that has shaped our world and believe that God not just, uh, yeah. Oh, thank you. That'd be a problem. <laughs> Excuse me. This is my first time doing the worship and the preaching thing, so bear with me. <laughs> it's easy to think that God looks down on us like, and with not a whole lot of concern about all us puny humans. When uh, six million Jews die in concentration camps, or tsunamis wash over islands filled with people. A student takes a gun to school and lives are shattered. Or when planes are flown into buildings of the New York City skyline. When chaos abrupts, we can certainly start to question whether God cares about any of these tragedies. And if he has any power over the way things are playing out here on planet Earth. You see, it's important to consider this question of God's control from a few perspectives. Now, first, we must understand the difference between God's permissiveness and his permissive will and his desired will. You see, God allows humans to act in selfish and sometimes horrible ways, but it's never his will. The fact that God allows terrible things to occur does not mean that he ever desired them to happen or that he somehow lost control of the situation. And this goes for all the events we even read in the Old Testament as well. God never wants to see his creation destroyed. 
You see, he allows it to happen because he allows us the choice of sin. Free will is one of the greatest blessings God gives us, but dang it if we don't mess it up sometimes. And more to the point about God's control, though, is that God is omni. And omni is from the Latin root that means all, and God is omni in three different ways that should settle the debate or the question on whether he's in control or not. So God is omniscient, meaning all-knowing. He's omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful, and he's omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere at once. Right? These omnis add up to show that God is sovereign over all, and consequently nothing is out of his control. And isn't it comforting to know that God is in complete control, no matter how things may look from our limited perspective? You see, I feel like these five lies we just explored have one basic thing in common, that the, that the enemy wants to trick us into believing that it's this, that God is just like us, that he is limited and fallible. A.W. Tozer, once again, really knocks it out of the park when he writes this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The deadliest lie the enemy wants us to believe uh, are those about God himself. If we're not careful, we could easily be put on a legalistic treadmill of trying to constantly please God, worried that he will either, that he either will let evil prevail or be angry against us. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, we could take like a theistic view of God and either think of God as existing, but kind of distant and uninvolved, or more like a benevolent vending machine ready to dispense whatever we desire. So how do you see God this morning? Are you guilty of believing any of these lies, even just a little bit? You see, the, the, the solution is easy if you do. Seek God. You can do this through a Bible study like we offer here at Dayspring, spending time in reading the Bible or talking to God through prayer. Uh, over time, you may find that God truly lives up to the hype, and he is not two-faced like so many heroes are. See, God is worthy of our worship and our trust, and we can be fully confident he has our best in mind all the time. And before we look at the two truths we are going to explore this morning, I want us to bring us up, on to, up to speed on the truth that we ex explored previously, right? Who doesn't need more truth in their life anyways, honestly? So in the past, we learned the truth about truth. The truth about truth is that there is truth. That's a wild sentence all on its own. But God wants to set what is true, and God sets what is true and what's not true. It exists and is not subject to change. We also learned to err is human. You can't please everyone. There is no pain without gain. Love never fails and that it's not all about you. We're going to get more into some of the more specifics on that one in just a minute. And finally, we also learned that life is difficult. Yeah, tell me about it, John. You see, if you miss any of these truths that we've covered in the past, please go back and watch them. They're available on our website and even on our YouTube channel. And not to brag, but I, I've even started to post one-minute clips of our message on, yes, TikTok and Instagram if you prefer, prefer short, digestible bits of truth. So now let's shift to these two truths that we're gonna explore this morning and you'll see how these actually really do apply to the lies we just covered. So first, the first lie, you must change what you can and accept what you can't. So this morning we're gonna, we're gonna play a little game right now. It's called How to Know You're a Control Freak, okay? It's simple to play and everyone here or watching online can play along. If you answer yes to any of the following questions, you just might be a control freak. Ready to play? Yeah, great. So you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, but if you're, you know, humble enough to admit it, you can. So first, do you frequently criticize and correct others? Now, they, these are people who think it's totally normal to uh, tell others what they are doing or how they're driving or what they're wearing is completely wrong. Because everyone knows when you load the dishwasher, with the forks and the spoons they, the, in the basket, the handles go up, not down, right? And of course, you don't wear white after Labor Day. I'm just trying to help, right? Are you a control freak? Okay, number two, do you think you're the only one who knows how to do things right? 
Do you doubt others can do anything on their own? Do you prefer just to do it all yourself rather than risking letting someone else help and mess things up? Are you a control freak? Uh, Number three, is it rare for you to admit you're wrong? I mean, of course you're not wrong. No, how could you be? You're too busy commenting about or correcting others to ever correct yourself. You tend to avoid thinking about your own mistakes by hating on the Karen in the grocery store who's throwing a fit because she doesn't want to wear a mask. It would take a crowbar to pry out an apology from you. There is no criticism in the world that could humble you. Are you a control freak? And number four, are you extremely hard to please? Because of your impossibly high standards, you are rarely, if ever, pleased with the efforts of someone else. Right inside your head, you think, oh, I could have done that or said that or organized that a lot better than that. Are you a control freak? So did you win? Are you a control freak? If you did, congrats, your life is miserable. <laughs> so perhaps, We should turn to God's word to find out how to change what we can and accept what we can't. So we're going to look at a familiar uh, story in the New Testament in Luke 10 about Mary, Martha, and Jesus. It seems like Jesus had a tender spot for these siblings. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had a deep connection with the Lord. It says this in Luke 10, 38-39. That as Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. Sounds like a lovely time. Martha is hospitable and Mary is attentive, but Ma- Martha, was, she was just about to lose it here. As she was busy trying to honor their guest by cooking dinner, Mary isn't helping at all. And eventually she had put up with enough. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. Now, to be honest, I have always identified with Martha in this passage. I almost think that's the point. Now, I've recently been very, very intentional about my quiet time with God. I have crafted my own reading plan for spending time in God's word. And when I commit myself to follow through, I feel more connected with him. I feel like I've been sitting at the feet of Jesus. But you know what? Sometimes I don't get there. And often it's because I'm, filled, I'm filling my desire for God with the idol of work. There are dishes that need to be done, laundry that needs to be tended to. And then there are times I'm just too lazy after working hard. I'm Tired to foc- I'm too tired to focus my mind, so I just zone out on the TV or I go to bed early. Sometimes I just plain forget. I, I forego spending time with God for something else. But heaven forbid I see someone else not working hard. Right? I am a recovering Pharisee in the judgment department. How dare they take time for something else when I'm putting in so much work? Okay, just, just call me Martha. And while she disrespected Jesus by insinuating that Jesus didn't care about her and gave Jesus a direct order, Jesus' response was calm and non-shaming. It says, in, keep picking up the story in Luke 10, 41, But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. Now, we have no idea if this is like normal behavior from Martha, but if she was asked the questions from our little game earlier, I think she would have won the grand prize. But this shouldn't lead us to think that she didn't deeply love Jesus. She expressed her devotion to him that day by trying to be an excellent host and expected Mary to do the same, but Mary isn't the same as Martha. I think a lot of us can relate to Martha. So if you're a control freak, and at some level, somewhere, we all are, how do we overcome these controlling ways? How does accepting the truth of what we can't change lead us to freedom? Well, let's quickly look at seven ways. First, you need to acknowledge God's ultimate control. 
You see, we know that God is in control every, over everything because God is sovereign. We, we explored that earlier with the omnis, right? He is in control. We cannot believe that God is powerless. We need to die to our controlling ways and humbly acknowledge that God is in control and would appreciate it if we would stop trying to run the universe for him. Uh, next up is know what we can and can't control. We can't control people, external circumstances, weather, the cost of goods, the stock market, and like a billion other things. What we can control is our mental, emotional, and behavioral reactions to people and circumstances. Uh, we cause ourselves to go crazy when we try to control things we can't. And then be an influencer. Start to shift from being a controller to being an influencer. You see, Jesus never controlled anyone. Never once did he violate someone's free will, uh, but instead showed people how to think, how to feel, how to act, and by how he lived. He taught them by telling stories, asking questions, listening, and he's loving. Uh, take practical steps. Once we understand what exactly we can control, we need to figure out how to move forward. You need a plan of attack, a way to form habits, a way to make the changes that will help you accomplish your goals. Uh, otherwise, you're not going anywhere. And then next, you need to seek reconciliation. Uh, we know that Martha was in the wrong with her attitude towards control, and we are also often wrong and have wronged others by trying to control them. And this isn't a one-time thing either. We need to constantly seek forgiveness for our actions. We don't stop trying to influence people to grow, but our requests for needed change should be humble and full of grace. And then we need to strengthen boundaries. For those of us who may not relate to this whole control issue as others, we need to protect ourselves from those trying to control us. Mary was doing the right thing by sitting at the feet of Jesus, not giving in to the pressure from Martha to help with the dinner preparations. When people try to control us, we need to make it clear uh, we're not going to give in to their pressure. And then we need to practice self-compassion. And finally, it's really time to cut ourselves some slack for being too controlling. It seems that control freaks operate out of a sense of fear. And what is causing that fear in the first place? You see, this is the deep root that being controlling stems from in the first place. We all have wounds related to how we were and how we are treated. And those wounds lead us to take control so that no one can hurt us again. Uh, so be patient with yourself and surrender control back to God. Uh, he is trustworthy and he is faithful. And our second truth today is it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, when you have an interaction uh, between yourself and another person, it is never a neutral exchange. Something is always taken or received. The idea is that you always give life or you take life away. This, this applies to any situation. And in life, there are egotistic people who take and take for themselves, giving no regards for others. They move from one person to the next, from friend to friend, hoping to gain something for themselves. And then there are those who, are, who selflessly give and meet the needs of others as best as they can. They only move uh, on once they have given someone the best they can offer. And if you look at the list of the worst people of all time, right, you would find people like Stalin and Hitler right at the top. And if you were to look at the best people of all time on that list, you would find names like Mother Teresa, Gandhi, or Jesus. And if you want to leave your mark on human history, you need to decide whether you're going to be a giver or you're going to be a taker. And when it comes to the world we live in, I think the mindset is pretty clear. What's in it for me? Right? This mindset is devastating to relationships because uh, it is life-sucking. Right? It turns people to be people who are to be loved into resources to be used and discarded. And a lot of what has been wounded, a lot of us have been wounded by this behavior, and we have wounded others by acting accordingly. See, we need to find the shift from what's in it for me to what's in it to them. So there are two kinds of people, givers and there are takers. And within the category of takers, there are three different kinds. 
So first there's the give to get taker. And this kind of person gives to others in order to get what they want in return. It's a very conditional affair. A person will kindly open the door for you, but then they'll get offended when you don't say thank you. They do something and expect something back. That's really not giving, though, if we're honest. And then we have the equal taker. This person keeps a mental Excel spreadsheet in their head. Okay, so Jeff gave me a ride to the doctor, so I need to make sure I give him a ride to church on Sunday. You see, this person is like wrapped up in anxiety about making sure everything is equal. But if this equality-focused person gives too much, they kind of get bitter and resentful. And then we have the full-blown taker. I think this needs little explanation. This person is all about themselves. They take from you emotionally, physically, and mentally. And once they've sucked everything they can from you, they are on to the next poor soul they can exploit. Okay, to be fair, these are pretty broad and sweeping generalizations. For most of us, we are a mixture of these. In one relationship, we are an equal taker, but in a different one, we are a a give-to-get taker. But the uniting factor is that regardless of the version, the relationship with an unhealthy taker is on track to fail. And in the midst of Jesus' disciples was a full-blown taker, Judas. We don't know a lot about his background, but what we do know about him isn't good. His name is synonymous with treachery and betrayal. And perhaps the most telling story of Judas being a selfish taker actually brings us back to Mary. Uh, The same Mary from the Mary and Martha story we looked at earlier. And in this story, we find Mary uh, being selfless and honoring uh, Jesus by once again giving him her full attention. And this is found in John 12, 2 through 3. It says a dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance. Now, while you can buy this perfume on Amazon right now for about $50 today, Uh, As best as I can tell, back then, this jar of perfume would have been worth around $54,509. This was a very costly act of devotion. You see, Mary had just witnessed Jesus raising her brother Lazarus from the dead. And she recognized Jesus as Lord and responded with a tremendous outpouring, outpouring of worship. But the disciples, they're less impressed with this action especially Judas. He had to speak up about this apparent waste. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and given money to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. So once again, we see a huge contrast between two people. We saw Mary and Martha, now we see Mary and Judas. And Mary cared deeply about her Lord and was so devoted to him and loved him so much that she served him in a way that was extremely costly and extremely sacrificial. She even humbled herself and got down and used her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. Now this morning, I've seen the cars in the parking lot. Some of them are pretty nice. So imagine selling your car and then turning around and spending all of that money, every cent, to buy the most expensive Ralph Lauren perfume for God. Right? Judas, on the other hand, uh, had been robbing both Jesus and the disciples. He had the audacity to speak out against this selfless act of love, as if he even cared. You see, Jesus doesn't remain silent against Judas. And this time, he's a little less gentle since he knew exactly what Judas was thinking and he knew what was to come. It says, uh, Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus knew Judas' heart and selfish desire for money. He knew of it. And Jesus recognized the difference between these two, and it was on full display here. But this isn't even the worst we see from Judas as a taker. 
Jesus' ultimate act of taking Cain when he used his relationship with Jesus to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus had loved, served, and poured himself out and his disciples for Judas, and Judas thanked him by betraying him. And Judas got the chance to cash in on his association with Jesus by turning him into the authorities to be crucified. Uh, the Bible says, when Judas, who had, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he's filled with, with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priest and the elders. I have sinned, he declared, for I betrayed an innocent man. And while Judas does show remorse here, this remorse was not a saving salvation kind of remorse, but a condemning worldly remorse. He didn't go to God for forgiveness, but lost himself in a, in a selfish inward sorrow. He tried to deal with his guilt by returning those 30 pieces of silver, but he was rejected by Jewish authorities. Uh, the Bible says that then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and hung himself. You see, Judas is an extreme example of being a taker but it does reveal the path that being a taker leads us down. If we spend our lives taking rather than giving, we are going to reap negative consequences. You see, this plays out in every aspect of our lives, our finances, our marriages, our friendships, or even our jobs. A common theme through the Bible is that we reap what we sow. And if you're a chronic taker, you will reap the cost of every situation, even perhaps your role within the body of Christ. But there is one character who is the exact opposite, one that we are called to emulate in every way, Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate giver. The way Christ looked at reality led him to be one of the healthiest givers who ever walked the planet. So what are the characteristics of a healthy giver? Well, today we're, we're going to look at five. The first one is service-minded. And in uh, Matthew 16, 24, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. You see, the first one here is to die to yourself and serve others. Try to meet people's needs best as you can. You are not being prideful when you do these things, uh, but you do it because you have a loving heart and you genuinely want to see people get closer to Jesus. And then we need to be discerning. We need to find those who we are to give to. Healthy givers use wisdom to make sure they don't serve a greedy taker who is unhealthy. Now, using discernment makes sure that you don't become and you don't enable a taker to become a worse taker. And on the surface, this can seem unloving, but you aren't helping them or yourself if you get sucked in, into an unhealthy situation. And next, a wise giver knows their limits. Right? We are finite beings with homes, families, and personal gifts God wants us to use. But if we're always giving, then all those things are going to suffer. Healthy givers are wise about their output. They also know the limits of what to give to an individual. If a truly needy person is going through an extremely difficult situation, the healthy giver gives more, but there are times to tap the brakes and give less. And then we need to give uh, a healthy uh, giver gives time, talents, and treasures. Just as God gives us blessings, we are then to bless others. We are being loving to others when we give them time. And it's often time spent together that really means the most, offering comfort and support. When we share our talents, beautiful new creations emerge. And if you've got a talent for technology, right, then you should use that for, to benefit others. Right? Our tech room here is an awesome example because of the many gifts from people coming together to make a live stream happen. And we are also healthy givers when we give financially to those in true need. Last but not least, a giver also knows how to receive. Uh, a healthy giver allows others to bless them. And I know I suffer the most with this one. You see, I love blessing others and my heart is burdened when someone feels wronged. But to receive can make me feel, well, like guilty or unworthy. If receivers are allowed to receive, then givers are allowed to receive as well. It is easy to get in the way of others blessing us by refusing to let them. We rob them of the joy of being a giver, which is a sin. So 
Learn to be a receiver if you really struggle with that. Jesus, as we wrap up, is the ultimate manifestation of a person who gave all he had, which was his life. He died so that we can live. He won't control our lives, but he will help us, give to us, and bless us as we go through life. We simply don't have to earn it, but simply believe. So as you reflect on the lies that sneak into our faith lives, reflect on Jesus as the ultimate manifestation of God's love for us, and also the ultimate example of how to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we investigate lies and truth, the Lord, we can come into that deeper relationship with you. That God, our the enemy wants to distract us and think low of you. But God, you are so big, you are so powerful, you are so almighty. But Lord, I pray we let you control our lives. Not out of a sense of guilt, but God, out of uh, worship to you. So God, as we continue to worship this morning, let us worship you as a fully known relational God. Let the words uh, impact our hearts and grow deeper with you this morning and into the rest of our lives. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you, people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. This is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you are on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.